delighted to be able to introduce our speaker today. Tom Gurley is a member of St. Philip's. He is originally from New York State, uh, went to high school in Florida, uh, was a very successful student, uh, got a PhD from Case Western University. Uh, he has had a very interesting and varied career. Uh, he worked as a spy, essentially, in the Cold War in West Berlin. Uh, he has worked for Goodyear and Abbott Labs. Uh, he's been an adjunct professor at the College of Charleston, the Citadel, Charleston Southern University, and he has received not just one, but two Fulbrights, one to do uh, research in Ukraine and then another in Uganda at Uganda Christian University. You may, without knowing it, have heard him before not speaking but playing the cello because when we have orchestral works and worship at St. Philip's, uh, he lends his cello skills uh, to us as well. Tom and his wife Jane are active at St. Philip's and have a large and wonderful family um, who are a blessing to many people, and we are delighted to have Tom with us today. So please welcome Tom um, to the podium. Yeah, thank you very much, Brian. <clears throat> I'm wearing my uh, periodic table uh, bow tie just to prove that I'm a real chemist. <laughs> uh, during the most intensive fighting in, during the Vietnam War, President uh, Johnson uh, announced the elimination of all draft deferments for grad students for most fields. That was the year that I began my graduate studies in chemistry at Case Western Reserve. It was a difficult time for those of you who remember that day. Under pressure of being drafted, I enlisted in the U.S. Army Security Agency, taking the oath of allegiance on Christmas Eve, 1968, on the 24th floor of the Federal Building in downtown Cleveland. Having just graduated from an ultra-conservative Christian Wesleyan Methodist College, Houghton College, in western New York, and just newly married six months, I remember leaving my academic life and traveling to Fort Dix, New Jersey, where I began my training and basic training in the Army. Awakened at 5.30 in the morning by a drill sergeant swearing at me to get dressed and to get outside on the tarmac in the dark, in the snow, to be ready to, to run the two-mile run before we had breakfast. It was a difficult and a shocking time for me. The only pleasure I remember was getting in bed and praying myself to sleep after my fingers and toes were almost frostbit, being outdoors all day. From, from Fort Dix, I was sent to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, six months of German immersion language training. Eight hours a day, nothing but German, with German-born instructors. <clears throat> Excuse me, I trained to be a voice intercept operator 
and I received orders for intelligence gathering in West Berlin. The city, surrounded by both the Berlin Wall and East Germany, the Communist Deutsche Demokratische Republik, or the German Democratic Republic, the truth was it was German dominated by the Soviets, but certainly not democratic nor a republic. My workplace was a top secret field station in a place called Teufelsberg, which in English is the Devil's Mountain. It was all the rubble from World War II piled up on the west side of Berlin, the highest elevation. This was eight years after the Berlin Wall was erected by the Soviets to stop the flow of East German professionals who were trying to escape the West. And when my wife asked me what I was doing, I had to tell her I was doing a boring desk job. My focus was intercepting telecommunications inside the Central Committee building in East Berlin, the heartbeat of the German Democratic Republic. With a group of army linguists trained in all the languages of the Soviet bloc nations, we monitored communications, both military and civilian. We worked closely with the National Security Agency, the NSA, who were experts in the German problem and communicated our intelligence daily to, the, to Washington. I recorded and transcribed the live phone conversations, including the leaders of the East German government, the first secretary, Walter Ulbricht, and other important political people like his young son-in-law, Eric Honecker, the head of the Zickerheitsabteilung, the East German KGB, who later became the first secretary of East Germany during the time the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. Another Russian KGB agent was uh, Putin, who was in East Germany a few years after me. We tracked the movement of these guys, their personal lives, including meetings with the old uh, Soviet leader Brezhnev, as well as their clandestine affairs. I read the daily German, East German propaganda newspaper, Neues Deutschland, the New Germany, and I was immersed in learning about the communist system. It was sobering. It was intense. It was fascinating. I will never forget my own personal face-to-face -face experience with the Cold War. When I took a 30-day leave of, for duty in the summertime to leave West Berlin, I had to travel through two checkpoints to get into West Germany. Most of you are familiar with Checkpoint Charlie, which is the checkpoint in this between East Berlin and West Berlin. I was not allowed to go through Checkpoint Charlie because of my job, but I was allowed to drive out. And to drive out, I had to go through Checkpoint Bravo, which is between West Berlin and East Germany and Checkpoint Alpha. That required driving past the East German guards, which we ignored because they were not legitimate, and stopping at the Soviet checkpoint and getting out of my vehicle and leave my, leaving my wife and my toddler in the car while I went out and saluted the Soviet, off, the 
Soviet soldier and then went into a little building where they had a um, teller's window that just had a slit where I could took, took my orders and passed them through that slit to a Soviet, unseen Soviet officer. As I waited in that room, it seemed like an eternity before my papers were stamped and they gave me back my, my orders so I could go back out, salute this soldier and continue on the road, the 110 miles to West Germany and then repeat that process at the Alpha checkpoint as well. It was a time I could have been kidnapped and it was a time of great vulnerability. Fortunately, that never happened. Spiritually at that time, Jane and I were on a journey to try to reconcile the description of the church in the book of Acts with the church that we knew in America. The church in Acts was vibrant, it was supernatural, it was cutting edge, it was high risk, it was dangerous with much persecution. Paul was praying for people to be healed and filled with the Holy Spirit. We searched for this reality in the 20th century. And we met with some other couples who joined us in our search. And during that time, we had a supernatural encounter with the Holy Spirit, catalyzed by a black army cook, John, from the inner city of Baltimore. This encounter spontaneously grew into a small group of about 60 believers from across America, several denominations, including Episcopalians, Catholics, Pentecostals, Baptists, and more. We would meet in our apartments and we'd sing the scriptures, we'd sing Psalm 19 and Psalm 100 and Micah 6, 8. We study the scriptures together and apply it to our lives. We saw people come to faith, supernaturally healed and encouraged in their walk with the Lord. It was a capstone experience, which lasted a short time, but shaped our thinking about the, what the church should be. The most influential person in my life was my dad, Greg Gurley, in terms of my spiritual development. He was an inventor and a mechanical engineer. His name is on several patents, mainly with IBM. And he came up with many creative ideas and built models of them. Unfortunately, he was very fragile. And when I was a small boy and he was in his early 30s, he suffered what they called it in those days nervous breakdown and was not able to work. And in his desperation, he joined a men's prayer group at the local Methodist church in upstate New York where I grew up. He actually had grown up in the Methodist church but never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And during one of those meetings, while someone prayed for one of the men sitting in the circle, my dad saw in an empty chair Jesus sitting in that chair. I think it was a vision, but whatever it was, it transformed my dad. I remember after that time seeing him sitting on the sofa with mom every evening reading the scriptures. And soon after that, I remember him 
taking me on the train to New York City to attend a Billy Graham crusade. And I, I remember him putting his pipe under his seat, going forward and recommitting his life to Christ and never smoking again. I was exposed to much preaching and teaching about the gospel in those days. It was a spiritual absorption process during my junior high years. And then, as Brian said, we moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, where I attended high school. I also remember reading a book that outside of the Bible had a profound impact on my thinking at the time. That book was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which I'm sure you know Brian is well aware of. During the summers, I followed my older brother Al's footsteps and worked at a Christian family camp in upstate New York, Camp of the Woods, in the Adirondacks. And at the age of 16, I remember feeling what I now know was the presence of the Holy Spirit. I went forward at one of the evening meetings and gave my life to Jesus Christ. It was the most important decision I would ever make and its impact has been profound to this day. During my time in Florida, I discovered my love of chemistry catalyzed by Mr. Rowland, my high school chemistry teacher. I would enroll at Houghton College and study chemistry under two young PhD chemists, Drs. Calhoun and Shannon, play basketball, which I loved, and meet my future wife. We met as freshmen. We were 18. We got married five days after graduation. In addition to my dad's impact on my life, I learned more about life and relationships and hearing and learning how to hear God's voice from Jane than anyone else. After Houghton College and after my time in Berlin, I returned to my PhD studies at Case working in the area of phosphorus 31 NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, but I was torn during my graduate days and at one point decided that I should become a Wycliffe Bible translator and live in a place like New Guinea for 35 years. I was drawn to the total commitment that these translators make to unreached people group, groups and invest their lives in bringing the gospel to them in their own written language. But I decided to finish my studies after meeting with our pastor about God's calling on my life in science. I've been asked, how can a man of science be a man of faith? And my answer to that question is, how can a man of science not be a man of faith? We read in Romans chapter 1, since what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so my understanding of the atomic theory of all the atoms and all the chemistries and all the world of biology and our galaxy is inconceivable to me how a scientist can choose to believe that this is just an accident. Upon gr graduation, I took a job as an analytical chemist with Goodyear Research in Akron, 
where I worked uh, on analysis of chemicals used to formulate rubber products and improve vulcanization process, processes. One of the fun projects I worked on was the development of a two-liter blow-molded polyester clear bottle used today in bottling soft drinks. From there, I transitioned to another multi-billion dollar company, Abbott Labs, in Ashland, Ohio, where I became the director of R&D at a manufacturing plant dedicated to the production and of pharmaceutical elastomeric medical components, where we produced one billion rubber vial stoppers and enough PVC IV tubing to go around the earth 10 times every year. And 100 million baby bottle rubber nipples as well. During this period of time, God blessed me with three daughters. Sonia, Juliana, and Yvonne. Sonia was born in Berlin. Uh, the blonde one is Jane, just in case you missed that. These three young girls played a major role in teaching me how to love and live and become the father God designed me to be. And now as a grandfather of 13 grandchildren, I more than ever realized the crucial role of a father's relationship to his children and the need for unconditional love, just as God loves us. I recently read the scripture in Romans 2 where Paul writes, the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. I experienced that kindness from my own father. I knew he loved me deeply. Our church search continued over many years. We searched for the true quote unquote church that we hoped would be like Berlin, the Berlin experience. I think we were a bit idealistic. To put it mildly, it was very disappointing and frustrating. After trying to integrate into about four different churches over several years, we finally decided to start our own home church. And we worshiped on Sunday, we studied the Bible and taught our young families what we believed. But even that, after a couple of years, had challenges. And we disbanded. And after a few more failed church attempts, we discovered the Church of the Holy Spirit an Episcopal inner city church in Akron, Ohio. It was a church plant from St. Luke's, which was one of the pioneers in the renewal movement under the leadership of an ex-Marine, Father Chuck Irish, who became a priest before knowing Jesus and had a supernatural experience and encounter with the Holy Spirit that transformed him and impacted St. Luke's. The Church of the Holy Spirit was, in my opinion, a real church, ministering to some of the lowest economic and broken members of society. It wasn't always pretty, sometimes messy, but people were encountering the love of Jesus and being cared for. I remember hearing the liturgical words for the first time and having these words resonate in my spirit, words that you are very familiar with, Quote, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ has died for you. We eventually transitioned to attend St. Luke's as our daughters were moving into college. It was there that we met Steve Wood, the associate rector, 
Steve is now the rector and bishop at St. Andrews here in Mount Pleasant. My wife remembers that we conducted 17 Alpha courses under Steve's oversight and were involved with leading several people to believe in Jesus and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. After Steve moved to South Carolina, which was extremely disappointing to me, both Jane and I would serve on the, vest on the vestry and we would unfortunately experience the loss of the lawsuit to the Episcopal Church and be forced to leave our building. It was wrong, it was evil. During those days, my wife founded a performing arts group called the Lion Players, a team of college-aged artists as part of the outreach ministry of Akron Crisis Pregnancy Center with a message of sexual integrity combined with the gospel. This group would perform high energy hip hop dance and swing dance and comedy sketches in churches and high schools, university campuses and summer camps. They would expand from a local ministry and they received an invitation to the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City to do street evangelism. The Lion Players went on to do some international mission trips. The first one they did was at the, the Soviet youth camps in St. Petersburg, outside of St. Petersburg, Russia, where they danced and shared their faith with the Russian youth. I became the logistics and sound guy. We would continue to receive invitations to the Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece, and then London where we performed on the green outside of Westminster Abbey and in the city center of Coventry. St. Luke's also had a calling to send short-term uh, mission teams to Kharkiv, Ukraine to support the local, to support the local uh, church there called Father's House to teach microeconomics and to work with the youth. You've mo most likely heard of the shelling of Kharkiv in the news. It's located in the far eastern region of Ukraine, 15 miles from the Russian border. We eventually made five short-term mission trips to Kharkiv and, and I played basketball with the youth and also helped fix the, an ultrasound machine and worked with Dr. Constantine. At one point during these mission trips, I, I said to my wife, if I keep coming back to Kharkiv, I want to come as a chemist and work with technical people. That's who I am. And through some divine appointments, I would eventually receive an invitation to work at the National Academy of Science in Kharkiv and apply for a Fulbright scholarship through the State Department. And so we lived in Kharkiv for six months and I worked at this academy and I worked with two young Ukrainian chemists, Nikolai and Sergei, who are, who are organic chemists synthesizing new drug compounds using microwave technology. The academy was Ukraine's equivalent to Los Alamos, but with a very meager budget. There were bare light bulbs hanging from the wires in the hallways and the labs had minimal glassware and instruments. The scientists would bring in toilet paper rolls for paper towels 
and fruit juice boxes for sample containers. I was able to share my faith with these guys. I, and I remember even though we landed a man on the moon some 30 years before I was there, I could not convince them that we actually did that. They believed that it was all fabricated in a big sandbox in Hollywood. They loved to share their jokes with me, jokes about the space race. Uh, I'll share two short ones with you. One was about Brezhnev. Brezhnev decided to have a high-level meeting with his science advisors and cosmonauts in the Kremlin to come up with ideas to outdo what the Americans had done, putting a man on the moon. And after the day's deliberation, he went to the podium and he said, I have the idea. He said, we'll put a man on the sun. <laughs> and like you, they started to laugh and he said, now, I know what you're thinking. They'll, they'll burn up if we put them on the sun. He said, the key is, we'll do it at night. The other one they told me was when Kennedy was president, the chief of staff burst into the Oval Office and said, Mr. President, you won't believe the Russians have put a team of, the Soviets have put a team of cosmonauts on the moon and they're painting the entire moon red. And the president sat down and pondered it and he thought for a minute and he said, okay, I think what we should do, we'll wait till they completely finish painting the whole moon red and then what we'll do is we'll send a team of astronauts up there and we'll paint across the entire moon in huge white cursive letters, the symbol of America, Coca-Cola. <laughs> Our international mission adventures were not over for the Lion players after the visits to Russia and the Olympics and then Ukraine. Jane had a meeting in Pittsburgh with the Archbishop of the Church of Uganda, in, which is Anglican, Luke Henry Orambi, and he invited the team to come to Kampala and to perform and present their message of saving sex for marriage and coupled with the gospel. At that time, Uganda was struggling with severe problems with HIV infections. So we went, and one, one of the schools we performed at was Uganda Christian University. Little did we know that within a few years we, we would return and live on that campus. We followed that trip a couple years later with another small mission trip led by Chuck Smith from Christ Church in Savannah to teach on family and marriage to the clergy in the bush in, in Uganda. And on that trip, at the end of that trip, we stopped at UCU Uganda Christian University and the American Vice President of Development asked me if I would consider coming to Uganda and helping teach chemistry at their newly built science building. I prayed about that, I applied for another Fulbright scholarship and we returned a few year, the next year to Uganda to teach at the university. I taught in the agricultural science department, labs, practicals in food and biochemistry. The students were delightful, strong Christians, very respectful, well-mannered and well-dressed even though they had very little, and extremely appreciative of us 
Mzungus, as they call the whites. I returned to UCU the next four years under the Fulbright Specialist Program and uh, continued working with the students and the faculty there. And I'm pleased that the um, St. Philip's is now praying for Uganda Christian Partners, which I'm on the board, which UCU is the largest Christian university in Uganda with over 10,000 students with majors in divinity, law, science, medicine, and much more. Their motto is a center of excellence in the heart of Africa. The final piece of my testimony is our move to South Carolina eight years ago. And because I had a love for gardening at our home in Ohio, I became interested in soilless growing and started doing my own research at home on growing plants aeroponically using vertical tubes with the roots hanging in air and saturated with nutrient solutions. Coupled with my interest in agricultural science in Uganda, I had another divine appointment with the head of the chemistry department at Charleston Southern University and was invited to teach aeroponics there. So five years ago I started teaching aeroponics and I ended up writing a book on aeroponics to use as a textbook, Aeroponics Growing Vertical. But my delight is really in integrating the parables of the seeds that Jesus taught, the sower and the seed, the weed and the tares, the mustard seed. That opens conversations about God's calling for each of their lives, their worldviews, and the impact of the words of these parables, the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world and the importance of having deep roots that can produce a hundredfold as they leave the university and serve God. To bring to closure my search for the church journey as it relates to St. Philip's, we initially were invited by former CIA spies, Doug and Charlene Ringer, Doug is here this afternoon, to the Wednesday Alive, but soon discovered the beauty, the music, the history, the stability, and the deep commitment of the clergy to follow Jesus Christ. We sense the presence of God every time we enter the doors and come into worship here. So let me conclude with um, referencing an article I read recently by John Piper titled Rethinking Retirement that has greatly influenced my thinking on God's calling on my life. And I'm convinced that God has a calling for all our lives no matter what stage of life we're at. I hope my testimony has challenged the younger generation to be willing to hear God's calling and to take risks and for the old fogies like me, that we will continue being willing to impact our children, our grandchildren, and all who we do life with, with the gospel. Thank you for your attention and God bless you. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope one of the things that you gleaned from that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to have Tom come and speak with us, is how many times over the course of his life and career, he and Jane pivoted to something completely new 
um, seeking after what God's will for them, and just looking at the fruit that came from that in all of these different places. It's a great challenge, I think, to all of us to be constantly trying to be in touch with and in step with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let me close this with a word of prayer and a blessing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for Tom's willingness to share his journey with you, with us. Lord, we thank you for the way that Tom and Jane have sought uh, after your spirit to be led into wherever you would take them. And Lord, we thank you for the amazing fruit that that is born in so many ministries and so many countries. Lord, we thank you for their family. We thank you for um, the fact that you are not done with them yet and that they are active in retirement uh, and trying to spread your kingdom. Lord, I thank you for each man here today. We pray that you would help all of us uh, to keep our eyes fixed on you, to lean into that relationship with you, and to understand that meaning and purpose are found as we align our lives with the things of your kingdom. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Thanks for coming, and uh, our next gathering like this will be in September, so stay tuned. Thank you.